Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is from the Caritas Veritas Symposium Archives. Recorded in November 2013, Dominican University neuroscience professor Dr. Bob Kalen Jagman gives a lively and thought-provoking presentation titled The Past, Present, and Future of Neuroengineering for Moral Perfection. The questions at the end are a little hard to hear, but the answers are worth sticking around for. Thank you for having me here. It's a real pleasure. Uh, my name is Bob Keelan Jagman. I'm in the psychology department at Dominican University. And I'm going to talk to you today about two of my favorite topics, which are morality and the brain and how they intersect. And I hope that you'll uh, enjoy and that we'll be able to have a nice discussion about where these two connect. So I want to start off with uh, just making kind of two general points that you've probably thought of yourself when you just kind of think about life and humans and what kind of creatures we are. And the first is um, that we are a moral animal. Right? That's kind of strange. Uh, what I mean by that is that we, we care a lot, we think a lot, we do a lot, we argue a lot about things like right and wrong and good and bad and evil. Um, we, we care about these things, we teach each other about these things, and that's kind of distinct for us, right? And it's, it's something that we consider kind of part of being human. It goes all the way back to our creation stories, that that's what first happened, that that was the, the price of the tree of knowledge is that we could discern right from wrong. And if you're a little more sciencey, you might think of it this way. Uh, where maybe is part of our evolution we started to think about this. But even though we all disagree about what is right or wrong, it seems like a constant topic of human conversation about what is right or wrong. We care about these moral ideas a lot. But if we think about that, probably the next thing you could notice about humans is that we're actually terrible at being moral, uh, that we're, we're real jerks to one another. We don't live up to the moral standards that we're constantly discussing. Again, that starts right off with the creation stories of Adam and Eve disobeying and eating the tree of knowledge, and it really just only gets worse from there. Cain slays Abel, uh, and that begins a whole cavalcade of retribution, revenge, war, and genocide that could fill many, many seminar courses. And it's not just the nasty stuff that we do to each other either. We also fail to do good things for one another, even when we say that we'd like to. So for example, this is Caravaggio's The Denial of Peter. This is St. Peter denying that he's with Jesus uh, at the time of his trial so that he could avoid suspicion. And this is one I particularly like. This is Van Gogh's Good Samaritan. This is a beautiful picture here. And you can see the person who's been robbed. Their stuff is strewn across the highway. We can see the Good Samaritan here who's lifting him up. He's bandaged him and he's putting him onto his own horse to go take care of him. But you can get so caught up in this picture, it's easy to miss, for example, this person in the background who's walked right by and this person who's long gone, who never stopped. 
So we can clearly see, uh, at least in artwork, that we often fail to live up to our moral standards. And again, we could probably do a semester's worth of talking about how uh, the evidence for this. We could talk about war and history and, and everything like that. But since I'm a scientist, I kind of like to, to take a scientific approach to this. I want to tell you about an experiment that was done, actually called the Good Samaritan Experiment, that tried to measure the degree to which we're jerks to one another. And in this experiment, this was done by two psychologists, Darley and Batson, in 1973. And they were working at the Princeton Seminary. So they were helping to train the next generation of clergy. And what they did was they set up a Good Samaritan-like situation. They asked their participants to come to their office and prepare a talk that they were going to give across campus. So they had to prepare the talk, then they had to walk over to the next building to give it. And on the way, Darley and Batson arranged for an actor to be sitting on a park bench. And as the participant walked by, they would hold their belly and groan and slump over and generally indicate that they were in a lot of distress. And what this experiment was really about was asking, what are we? What type of people are we? Are we this good Samaritan who stops and helps, or are we the person that walks on by? And what better group to study this in than the future clergy? Because if they don't stop and help, what hope do we have? So um, what they found is pretty depressing. Um, overall, on average, they found that only about 40% of their participants actually stopped to help out. So that's less than half. More than half the people walked right on by this person who needed their help. Now, there's some interesting uh, twists that they did. They changed the situation in different uh, experiments. And some of the data is really both depressing and exciting. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. One thing they changed is what the speech was going to be about. So some people, they said, I want you to just prepare a regular old speech about clerical employment and career opportunities. And the other half, they said, we want you to prepare a speech about the Good Samaritan story, about the need to help others who are in distress, and then go tell other people about it. If they were just going to talk about clerical stuff, only 30% of people helped. If they were on their way to lecture other people about how to be a Good Samaritan, 53% of people helped. That's miserable, right? I guess it's good that thinking about it helped a bit, but still just barely more than half. And then they did another variation, which is also really chilling. They varied what they told them as they left. For some of them, they said, OK, it's across the way. Uh, you're right on time. And others, they said, well, you know, you are a little late. You might want to hurry. And for some of them, they said, wow, you're really running late. You better run. And here's the results. If you were on time, this is the best scenario. Almost 2 thirds of the people helped. But if, and how many of you feel like this, like you're always late and you're always running, right? And there's always some assignment due for seminar. You've got to come to some talk, right? Oh, geez. 10% of people helped. And that's pretty much our whole modern situation, right? Like that's 10% of people actually stopped and helped. And that's the, those are the future clergy, so what chance do we have, right? And if Van Gogh was more of a scientist, he would have had to have uh, popped in nine more people here to get to this one person that was going to actually help. So can I, I think we can accept, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take these as theses for right now, that we care about morality, but we're fairly terrible at doing it. And the Greeks, they have a word for just about everything. And they've been thinking about this for thousands of years. And they came up with a word for this. Uh, some people call it akrasia, which I think is more close to how the Greeks would say it. But in English, most people just say akrasia. Akrasia, like you're crazy for doing that, man. Uh, akrasia is acting against your better judgment. Jesus used that word. He says that about the Pharisees. So you could think of it as kind of a really polite way of saying that someone's a total hypocrite. And akrasia is just doing the things you know you shouldn't do. And I, I hope, without being too personal, we could all think of at least sometimes when you've been ecratic, 
when you've done something you don't want to do. Uh, I'll give you at least a slightly gentle example from my own life, which is my diet. You know, I could think of lots of reasons why in this society, with all these other options, we probably don't need to kill animals for me to be able to eat, right? And I think about that, and in my better judgment, I think, yeah, that's the reason why I should probably stick to vegetables. But I can tell you without a doubt that if there's bacon in front of me, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> and it just happens every time. And then I later think, man, why, you know, what am I doing? But bacon, you know, I don't have a good answer to that. So here's what I'd like to talk with you about today and, and get us to discuss a little bit. Uh, I wanted, the main topic I want to talk with you about is can we actually solve acrasia with neuroscience? Can we be better people because of what we learn about the brain? Or is that actually a crazy idea? And to do that, I want to tell you a couple things. First, I want to tell you a little bit about how we've traditionally tried to solve problems with acrasia. And then I want to tell you a little bit about neuroscience and what we've learned about the brain and how it might be able to help. And then I hope we'll have a good debate about whether this is the absolutely best or the absolutely worst idea that anybody's ever come up with. So we'll see how that goes. So let's talk first about some of the traditional ways people have tried to avoid acrasia. The traditional solution is to just try to not do the behavior. Kind of makes sense. Just try to block it somehow. Uh, it turns out the Gospels have some pretty strong advice about this. You might know this. Jesus says in Matthew, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it away from you. It's better that you lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And he goes on, if, you stump, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. That's a pretty extreme uh, solution, but we could all see how that would work, right? Uh, if, you, if you're a kleptomaniac and you're stealing all the time and you cut off your hands, it's going to be pretty hard to be acratic anymore. You'll just be good. I know a lot of people that think we have to take every verse in the Bible literally. I don't know anybody who's actually taken this literally for themselves. <laughs> It's kind of an interesting dichotomy. And economists talk about this a lot as well. Other people besides the Gospels have talked about this. The economists have given this a general name of what Jesus is talking about here. They call it a commitment device. A commitment device. It's something that you do to try to force yourself into a certain behavior, to try to keep yourself on the straight and narrow. A wedding ring is probably a commitment device, right? It's a sign of commitment, and it's supposed to signal to you and to other people, hey, hands off, that's the end, right? Uh, and there's examples, once you start thinking about this, you start seeing them everywhere. You start realizing how much of our society has these commitment devices to try to keep us doing the right thing. They're in myths, like Odysseus. Here's Odysseus, and he knows that he would really like to listen to the Song of the Sirens, but if he does, they'll lead him to his doom. And so he has a commitment device. He has his sailors lash him to the mast so that he can hear it, but not make that wrong decision to go follow them, right? Or a chastity belt. Here's a, you wrap this around your base, waist, this goes wrapped around your undergarments, and if you can see all the teeth here, you know that you're very well protected from lustful urges. Um, I put a little question mark by that because it turns out these may be more of an urban myth. Uh, the idea of a chassis belt was discussed in medieval literature, and nobody actually seemed to take it seriously. And then later, people started making them almost like copying out of old books. And nobody knows if anybody's ever actually worn one of these or not. But they do have them around. You get to Dr. Perry to come and talk about that. So with the examples I've given you so far, you might be wondering, well, are these, is this just all fantasy? Is it, are commitment devices just fictional? So I'm going to skip ahead a few thousand years, and I'll tell you about a couple that are on the market right now that you could use. One of them is a drug called antabuse. That's, its, uh, that's what you'd ask for at the pharmacist. Its uh, name is disulfiram. And what it does is it makes it impossible for your body to properly process alcohol. 
So when you take that uh, and then you drink alcohol, instead of it breaking down in its normal process, which would get you a bit buzzed, but also eventually leave your body, it starts to accumulate in your body and becomes extremely toxic. And you have headaches and you throw up and you turn red and it's miserable. And this is sold as a commitment device for alcoholics. They can take this regularly and make it so that if they do slip and choose to drink, it becomes extremely unpleasant for them. And if they are properly medicated, people will not choose this. It's miserable. Um, there's another one that's coming to market that's a new wave of things called uh, drug vaccines. One of them is called a cocaine vaccine. This is a vaccine like you would get for mumps or measles, but the vaccine doesn't make your immune system respond to the measles virus. It makes it respond to a drug molecule, in this case, cocaine. So once you're vaccinated, if you were to do some cocaine, and I know none of you ever would, but if you were, your immune system would attack those molecules. And once they're attacked, they wouldn't be able to cross over into your brain and you wouldn't be able to get high from it. And they're working on marijuana vaccines and other types of vaccines like this as well. Sad news for some of you, I know. <laughs> when you realize, when you, and, and you can imagine what your kids will be like when they go to college and you say, sorry, you're already vaccinated. <laughs> now, this all sounds kind of cheery, but there's some problems with commitment devices, right? Uh, one huge one, which I'm sure you're already thinking about, we're already teasing about, is who decides? Who gets to say you need to take disulfiram or you need this uh, cocaine vaccine? And that's fraught with a lot of issues. But before we even get to that, there's a more important issue, which is that they don't work very well, not particularly well, at least most of the ones that people have. The problem with most commitment devices is that they block you from doing the behavior that's bad, but they don't change your desire to do it. So you may still really, really want to do that bad thing. And if you really, really want to do it, then you can circumvent. You could find a way around it. If I Googled circumvent, this is the image that came up. You're supposed to solve the maze, and somebody just brings a ladder. right? And we're clever. People find ways around their commitment devices. As a matter of fact, Odysseus, when he was lashed to the mast, listening to the sirens, he said, hey, by the way, crew, just kidding. Let me go. I'm fine. I would like, really like to hear more of that song. Fortunately, his crew said no, and they actually tied him even tighter. But in the throes of the passion, he thought, well, let's just get rid of this commitment device. Let's just go for it. And this happens over and over again. So for example, antabuse, the one that's supposed to treat alcoholism, for inpatients who are forced to be medicated daily, they have a 50% uh, abstinence rate over the course of a year. So half of people treated with this will not touch a drink for a full year. And in addiction research, that's amazing, because addiction is extremely hard to treat. But if you're an outpatient, about 80% of the patients find ways to stop getting the injections. They sham them, they pretend, they Lance Armstrong it, uh, and they find ways to not take it, and they go back to drinking. In the first trials that people have done with these cocaine vaccines, right now they're just testing them for safety, but they gave them to a group of uh, addicts to see, to, that volunteered and that were apprised of the risks to see what would happen. And what they found, at least in the first reports, is that they noticed a huge increase in cocaine in their urine in the drug tests they were giving them. And their thought was that they were trying to flood their own immune system and try to get high despite it. And you can imagine all kinds of really terrible circumvention devices. You could just take an immunosuppressant, ruin your immune system. You could go back to getting high. Um, people are unfortunately clever at figuring this out. So this raises the question, and here's where we're going to finally hit some neuroscience. Can we make a better commitment device? Can we solve a crazy in a better way? Can we move upstream into the brain and block not the things you do, 
but what you want to do? Can we change your personality or your desires or your motivations so that you no longer even want to do the things that you said you didn't want to do anyways? So here's the question. And I want to tell you a little bit now about some neuroscience that says that maybe we could do this with some techniques generally called brain stimulation. So let me walk you through this for a minute. We know that your brain, like all the other organs in your body, is chemical. It secretes chemicals and detects chemicals. But your brain is unique amongst the other organs in being also electrical. So it's electrical signals that are going back and forth from your toes to your spine up to your brain and back and forth primarily that help send those, that information. But that actually makes it really easy to hack because since it is electrical, we can just apply electricity directly to a part of your nervous system and get it to do things. And people have kind of been figuring this out over the past couple thousand years. The Romans, for example, uh, recommended as a headache remedy that you would step on an electric ray and it would shock the ever-loving crap out of you. And uh, maybe in comparison, your headache didn't feel so bad. Um, but it would cause mild seizures. And they recognized that this was causing some type of effect in the body. By the 1700s, when people were really finally getting a handle on what electricity was, it was the very same people, like Luigi Galvani, who were also realizing that the body is electrical, that the brain is electrical. Here's a diagram from Galvani where he's applying electrical current to the muscles of a dead frog, and he could make the frog legs move by applying electricity to it. And from there, things really took off. Uh, by the late 1800s, people had learned how to open up a, a mammalian brain, like a cat or a dog, and directly apply electricity to it, and they discovered things like the motor cortex, like the part of your brain that if you stimulate would move the different parts of your body. And they could manually make animals move by stimulating their brain. And in the 1930s, a Russian researcher named uh, Hess came up with what he called deep brain stimulation. That's still what we call it today. Instead of doing the surface of the brain, he uh, cemented electrodes onto the skull that would then go into the brain, uh, really, really fine wire so they wouldn't damage anything on the way through. And they're insulated all the way down to the tip so they could activate parts of your brain that are deep within, uh, below the surface, and basically target any system they want. And things really took off in the 1950s with the better electronics capabilities that people developed. And this is uh, Jorge and Caroline Delgado. They were researchers at Yale, uh, a husband-wife neuroscience team, kind of creepy, um, that would happen. And they developed the Stimoceiver. This was a deep brain implant that they could implant uh, permanently into an animal's skull. And it had a radio antenna that they could then flip a switch and stimulate the animal by remote control. And their ideas were, uh, soon applied to humans, both in their own lab and then another uh, collaborator they had named Robert Heath, who was at Tulane University in um, New Orleans. And in this kind of wild era of the 50s and 60s, when there wasn't a whole lot of oversight about what they're doing, together, Heath and Delgado put deep brain stimulators into about 160 different human patients. Can you see this guy? Let me, let me uh, this is one of Heath's patients. It looks like a USB hub. Can you see that? All the different wires come out of his head, so he'd have different leads in different places. They could hook him up in different types of equipment and see what would happen. So <laughs> where have we gone here? How have we got from acrasia to uh, neuroscience all of a sudden? Well, I'll let Delgado tell you. He pioneered this technique, and he had big dreams about what this could do. So this is what he had to say. Because the brain controls the whole body and all of your mental activities, Electrical stimulation of the brain could possibly become the master control of human behavior and by means of man-made plans and instruments. 
So because your brain makes you you, if we can control your brain, we can control you. And the brain stimulation would allow what he called the physical control of behavior, switches and computers and relays literally controlling your behavior, and that this would take us towards a psycho-civilized society, that we could improve our society and ourselves by using these types of techniques. Now, you may already disagree with him. It's already starting to seem a pretty creepy idea. Uh, but let's just st first start with, does this even seem reasonable? Could this really happen? And I think the general answer, although it's not altogether clear, is yes. I think overall Delgado is probably right about this. Some from his own research and some from stuff that came later. So it turns out we really can induce tremendous range of emotions and behaviors by activating brains directly. Here's one of Delgado's experiments where he implanted a stimulus in a cat in a particular part of the brain that's activated whenever you normally become aggressive. By flipping the switch and activating it, the cat would go into a rage and attack whatever was nearby. Turn the switch off and you don't no longer have a killer kitty. This works in humans too. This is a patient named Julia that Delgado helped to treat. She had temporal lobe epilepsy that caused her to become violent. They wanted to try to find out which part of the brain was causing these violent, these violent episodes. So they implanted her with electrodes and tried to reproduce the violence manually by stimulating her brain. And they figured if they could figure out where it was coming from, they could destroy that area and make her calm and peaceable. Um, and this is Julia at rest. And this is Julia being stimulated by the stimulusiever uh, in her amygdala, another area involved in emotion and aggression. And she flew into a rage and smashed everything in the room. And then they turn it off and she go right back to normal. And they did this on a couple different days. This is already pretty troubling, right? Uh, but it's not just activating behaviors. Delgado found that he could also block behaviors that he didn't like. So I'm going to show you a video here of probably one of the most famous experiments in neuroscience where he experimented on an aggressive bull with a stimulusiever. He was Spanish, and I think he just loved bullfighting. And with science, he was able to become a bullfighter. Neurophysicist Dr. Jose Delgado was financed by the Office of Naval Research. In this experiment, the bull is sedated. Electrodes are implanted in its brain. Delgado transmits an electronic impulse to the center of the bull's brain. Now that's Delgado, not a real bullfighter. So the remote, has control. remote control of the animal. He flips the switch, Recently and in this case, it turns to the left every time he flips the switch. To the feasibility of remote control of animals. Now he's gotten smarter. He's let the bullfighter back in the ring. Will be conducted toward the application. He can make it turn in circles. Elements of these techniques. He can block the aggression. Um, a couple things to just point out about that. I don't know if you noticed. He did the operation right there in the bull ring. It's actually really easy to do. Uh, there's some risks of infection and things like that, but it doesn't take uh, a really sophisticated uh, surgical team to do this type of operation. Uh, and the bull recovers within minutes and is back up on its feet and is walking around, but remote controllable. Delgado was wrong about some of his ideas. He thought he was blocking aggression. It turns out he was activating a motor center that just made the animal spin. So it may have still really wanted to gore the crap out of him. It just couldn't do it. But we could accept the possibility that if you target the right brain areas, you could not only make the animal not do it, but not want to do it, that we could actually change its motivation. A whole range of things have been reported with brain stimulation. Heath, his collaborator in New Orleans, uh, focused on this region here at the base of the brain between the two lateral uh, 
lateral ventricles, which he calls the septal region. And he found that when he stimulated this in a number of different human patients, that it could be pleasurable, people could feel more alert, uh, some people felt overwhelming euphoria, a few people even experienced orgasm through stimulation in this area. Here's one of his descriptions. Patient B19 stimulated, and he, he gave them little boxes where they could choose when and where to stimulate themselves to see what they would do. And this patient, B19, stimulated himself to a point that, both behaviorally and introspectively, he's experiencing an almost overwhelming euphoria and elation, and he had to be disconnected despite his vigorous protests. <laughs> yeah, I would, <laughs> doctor, give that back. I wasn't done with that yet. And here's something now, the fact that you can produce this type of emotion and feeling is amazing. What's even more interesting is a little tidbit in one of his reports where he mentions that the good feelings that come from this then could bleed into the patient's later activities. So he noticed, for example, that if they stimulated the person before lunch, they would really, really love their lunch even after the stimulation was over. He could start to shape their likes and their dislikes by giving them particular uh, pleasure stimulation before they did something and associate those two things together. So now we can connect these two things. Say you're a cratic. Say you're doing things that you wish you weren't doing, like eating bacon. We could solve this with neuroscience. One way we could do this is stimulate your brain to block or remove your motivation to do this bad behavior. So for example, the next time I see bacon, I could have a little stimosiever that flips on and activates my nausea center. and makes me want to throw up and, and, and feel terrible. And it probably wouldn't take me long before I would never want to eat bacon again, right? Or we could be a little more on the positive side of things. We could try to stimulate my pleasure center every time I do something alternative behavior that's actually good. So next time somebody offers me a salad and I'm thinking, well, can't we put some bacon on that? Uh, I could stimulate, so I'm not happy, I could stimulate my pleasure center and be like, whoa, I freaking love salad. I don't need any bacon on that. Now, again, this may sound far-fetched, and now we're getting even a little bit further afield about what's actually possible. But there is some suggestive evidence from, uh, from Heath and Delgado and a few other researchers that says that we may be able to do something like this. Delgado actually started. In 1969, he designed the first behavioral brain feedback system to try to control an animal's aggression. He implanted these electrodes in chimpanzee brains, and he noticed that every time they were about to fight, there was a particular signal that came from the amygdala, which he called a spindle. It may not actually be what he thought it was, but there was a particular signal that meant that a fight was going to come. So some of the wires listened in on that part of the brain and tried to detect when those spindles occurred. It was fed into a primitive computer that he had at the time. When it detected that that was going to occur, so if it got the signal that said, monkey's going to fight, or primate's going to fight, it would send a signal to the caudate and try to calm it. So here we have a, a system that would try to improve this animal's behavior. Um, the results of this are somewhat hard to interpret because the surgery techniques were not so good, the reporting techniques were not so good, but he did find that this particular signal that he thought meant aggression decreased by 99% over the course of training. And even after he turned it off, the animal remained different in its behavior. Quote, uh, she was quieter, also less attentive. That's a little, not exactly what he was looking for, more of a generalized zombie-like state uh, that you may not want to go for. But despite the fact that this wasn't ideal, uh, Robert Heath in New Orleans immediately moved on to trying this in humans. So I'm going to tell you about a study now. 
and it's been called one of the most unethical studies that's ever been done in all of science. And believe me, unfortunately, you have to work really hard to win that honor. Uh, there's some really terrible stuff that's been done, uh, but it's up there. Um, I also need to tell, warn you that Heath, Robert Heath, who did this research, was notoriously unreliable. Even by the standards of his own day, many researchers accused him of fraud and deception and distorting the truth. So what really happened in this experiment is up to debate, but I'll tell you his account of it, and you can make your own decision. This is a case he called his patient B19, uh, and what he tried to do with this patient was try to do sexual preference conversion, try to turn him from homosexual to straight. This was at a time when homosexuality was considered a mental illness, but even by the standards of his time, other physicians condemned this research and said that he shouldn't have done it. So as an experiment, he gave the man, uh, he put deep brain simulators in that would stimulate a pleasure center, and he gave him stag films to watch. That's uh, the old version of internet pornography. While he pushed the pleasure center hotline, and the result was a new interest in female companionship. So he repeatedly had the person watch straight porn and simulate this, this pleasure center until he reported that he might be interested in such activities. It gets even worse. He went out and cleared it. I don't know how you clear this with the state attorney general, but they hired a lady of the evening, uh, and they paid her $50 to have sex with this patient. And they considered it a success. They told her it was going to be weird because there could be wires running out of his head, and they'd be in the next room. But they thought it went well. Uh, they all, the, the lady, the guy, and the physician all said it was a success. Uh, the conversion was only temporary. At the time when Heath was doing his research, they couldn't leave these implants in for very long, like they can now, because of the high risks of infection. Uh, so he did remove the electrodes eventually. He, did, he was very lazy with his follow-up, but this is what he wrote, um, that 11 months afterwards, he's apparently functioning better, which still, uh, but still has a complaining disposition which does not permit him to readily admit to his progress. However, he did meet and form a close sexual relationship with a married woman for almost 10 months. Not great on the moral side I was talking about, but, but a change, right? A change. Um, again, it's chilling to see how he only hears what he wants to hear. You can see that he's not hearing everything he wants to hear, and he's saying it's his complaining disposition that's wrong. So again, you have to take these results with a grain of salt. And I'm certainly not suggesting or condoning his ethics or suggesting we do similar research now. But what fascinates me about this research is the possibility that you could change even fundamental, deep-seated things about yourself. You could change what you like and dislike, potentially, through brain stimulation. That even things that you currently couldn't stand, you may be able to be brought around to, and things you love, you may be able to turn into hate. And that's a deep and troubling thought. This technology was largely abandoned in the 70s. Heath and Delgado's research caused controversy and outrage, and actually some of it was responsible for the higher standards of care that we now give to our human participants whenever we do research, and animal participants. But in the 1980s, it was rediscovered, uh, and it's kind of amazing. People talk about this now, and there's research on it now, but they never go back and cite these people because they're kind of embarrassments in the neuroscience family. Um, and it's now being used, at first it was rediscovered to treat Parkinson's and epilepsy, and it's extremely effective for it. It's a really uh, useful technique for people that are not responding to other drugs for Parkinson's. It's re relatively cheap, it's very personalized because they put it into your brain and they can put a couple different wires in and try out different options. And because it's working so well, people keep expanding what they're gonna try it for. And the list is actually growing kind of disturbing. It's now also being used, at least in trial basis, for 
eating disorders, addiction, depression, and aggression, right back to where we were in the 60s. It's estimated that there are now over 100,000 people worldwide that have these stimulators implanted permanently. So you could fill two Bears games with people that have wires in their heads now, if you got them all together for a conference. And it's not the only way that we could do this. Uh, since Heath and Delgado, we've developed a lot of alternative ways that we could stimulate the brain and try to change your personality um, less invasively. There's a technique that uses a magnet. There's a technique that some people think may not even be real, where they use a really low level, level laser that may go through your skull and activate neurons. This is the craziest one I know of. It's called TDCS. You basically just strap a battery to your head and let the current go directly through and see what happens. The military is funding a lot of that. And just to give you a flavor, a lot of the things that Heath and Delgado thought would be possible are becoming possible. This is a case study report from 2010 where they reported on deep brain simulation that was used to try to treat patients who were radically self-injurious. Uh, people in a mental health institution that would try to harm and hurt themselves, that had to be in restraints almost 24-7. So these are really troubled people. Uh, and some of the results are astounding. For example, case one had a quick improvement. All their self-aggression disappeared. They were able to return to live with their family and started attending just outpatient therapy. Some of the stories are really tragic. Here, one of their patients uh, was able to leave restraints, leave the hospital, was well for three whole years. At the end of the three years, they needed to have another surgery for a different reason. To do it, they had to turn the stimulator off. She went back to being self-injurious, and when they turned it back on after the surgery, for some reason, it just didn't work well anymore, and they relapsed, and nobody knows why. But overall, again, there's this promise of being able to radically reprogram behavior by doing this. Some of the stuff that's coming out now is also just kind of cute in what we could change about you. Here's a study where they uh, had people view art, either representational art or abstract art, and they had them rate how much do you love this art. People kind of thought the representational art was okay. They didn't really enjoy the abstract art that much. And then they strapped batteries to their heads, and they found that, boy, did they love that representational art all of a sudden. So they felt that they could change your whole aesthetic profile. They could make you change what you, what you like and dislike about art. Apparently, nothing can make you like abstract art. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for still being with me here. You're all still awake, which is pretty awesome. That's a record for me. Uh, let's get to the uh, debate portion. Oh, somebody said only so-so. Okay. Uh, let's get to the debate portion. So now you have an idea about what I'm talking about. We have this problem that we all, I think, recognize of acrasia, that we often do things that we don't want to do ourselves personally. And we have this possibility of fixing it with better living through chemical or brain stimulation. Delgado, who I, I just can't stop reading, he's such an amazing, interesting guy, wrote this book in 1969 called The Physical Control of Mind Towards a Psycho-Civilized Society. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you his point of view and, and we'll debate it a little bit. But this is his thesis. Hey, he has a thesis statement. Isn't that great for seminar students, right? The thesis of this book is that we've reached a critical turning point in the evolution of man at which the mind can be used to influence its own structure. You can use your brain to change your brain. It can change its own structure, function, and purpose, thereby ensuring both the preservation and the advance of civilization. So his thesis was, this is the best thing ever. We should be... Uh, re-engineering our own brains to change our motivations and our behaviors to fix the ills of society. And if we do that, 
we might have a chance of making it through. We could halt crime. We could get people to recycle. There could be a recycling stimulator in your brain. Uh, low carbon emissions, okay, let's stimulate that. You know, we could just fix our problems by fixing ourselves. What do you think? Uh, let's start with a quick poll. Uh, how many people are on board with Delgado? Best idea ever? Oh, okay. How many people are really strongly against us? Worst idea ever? Some of you? Decent number of you? Okay. And how many people are in the middle or just weren't paying attention? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, let's hear from some of the people that really don't want to do this. What, what, why not? Why can't I put a simulator in your brain, please? Anybody? Seems like it's taken away from free will. Ah, that's right. It could take away from your free will. Who's really in charge anymore, right? I love it. Thank you. I even have a slide for that. I'm going to play Delgado here for a second. <laughs> Delgado said, you might think so, but you'd be wrong. He said that right now you're not free. Because right now, you have to live the life of your genes and your parents and all this other upcoming that you had, and you're just responding in the way that you've been programmed to do by external events. And what would really be free is if you liberated yourself and reprogrammed your brain to be the person you want to be. You could not have any of those hang-ups from your childhood or from your genetics. You could have the real choice to author yourself. And as he says, the element most essential is to assure that our responses will not be automatic, but deliberate and personal. That if you got the choice to decide, hey, I want to like bacon, I don't want to like this, I want to like this type of sex, I don't want to like this type of sex, you'd get to be, you get to pull yourself right off of a menu. You'd be the ultimate in free will. Are you convinced? Not to put you on the spot. No, I'm not I feel like it's, I'm being transformed or something like that. Would it even be you? Thinking better or becoming a better person. Okay. Sure. <laughs> this assumes that there is an essential self, which is an interesting dualistic thing for a monist like Delgado to do. You say the brain is the mind. Now, that's a starting point, right? And so by manipulating the brain, I've changed the mind. Right? But then he says there's a you in there who wants it to be this way. But that's not so if all of what you are is already programmed by your life and your society. Consider the homosexuality example. Here's he's working to cure homosexuality, right? And even this guy says, I don't want to be homosexual anymore. Well, why doesn't he want to be homosexual? He doesn't want to be because his society has taught him is wrong. Not because there's some innate wrongness to it necessarily. There might, there might not. But Anything we choose, we have to remember, if you go to Bronfenbrenner, right? The choice is already informed by this huge range of social controls. Now I'm just going to fall more in line with what those social controls think I should be. Yeah, I think, I think what you're saying is you, it's not freedom, but it actually you're just going to start following the crowd. You're actually going to make yourself even more like the rest of society wants to make you. Because now you're going to reprogram yourself to never do anything that anybody considers weird or unusual, right? You could, you could become the ultimate conformist. You would, you know, you could make yourself like Lady Gaga with the brain simulator and be like, yep, I super love Top 40. It's great. It's a very 1950s yeah. vision of utopia, right? It is. It is. What else? Anybody else have a strong reaction about this? Um, I suppose I should preface this with saying that that last comment about society opens this whole other issue because why would anybody 
right, and there is some path to human evolution that like, gets to a point where like that is the end, like we actually are changing, like this is a thing, you know what I mean? We were monkeys, whatever. Like, that's probably the way it's supposed to be. I don't think we should get science to start changing our morals, because once if you change morals scientifically, they don't, they're not morals anymore. There's ah. something totally different. There, it's not who you are, it's who you're creating yourself to be. That's not a thing. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Like, it's like, it inverts the whole, like, God-human relationship. You're making yourself, right? Delgado, uh, so who is it that's doing this? Are you the one who, can you even praise yourself if you say, oh, okay, I didn't eat bacon any this week. And you're like, yeah, you got that brain simulator in, you jerk. Like, of course you didn't eat bacon. You can't eat bacon. It inverts all of our ideas about even moral responsibility. Now, Delgado, again, he's, he's a very, I wanna, I'm going to try to be, his advocate here for you. He says that actually this becomes seamlessly part of you. That in his experience, when he stimulates a person, even though he stimulates it, even if the patient knows that it's being stimulated, they incorporate it into their own identity. So for example, he could stimulate people's motor cortex that would make their hand move, and he'd say, why did you do that? And they'd say, oh, I saw something over here that I wanted to wave at. That you somehow, and this is bizarre, your brain takes credit for whatever your brain does, and so you could go in and hack it and change it, and you'd still feel like you, he thinks. Although, hard to tell. That's Some philosophers get to help us out with that. That um, filling in the gaps that your brain does, that's a natural thing. You do that anyways. Like, you, might, you might not have remembered something from yesterday, but if you were asked to remember that, you could make something up to fill in the gap. Like, that's right, you confabulate. You just fill things in. Something that comes from the electrical simulation that's... Well, the electrical simulation is wrong. Even if you're the type of person that sits there and cuts themselves all day? Maybe that's who I am, you don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's who I want to be. No need to disclose, but yeah, we're gonna, let's talk afterwards, no. Uh, no, so, you know, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with that point of view. It's like, it's, there's just this part of my gut that just says, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing anybody's ever done. But again, to try to have some sympathy for Delgado, he's working with some patients who are in truly dire straits. Uh, you know, maybe bacon is a little too superfluous, but for people who, uh, for example, uh, Julia, who he operated on, had twice, twice attempted to kill other people. Uh, and she regretted it, she said. She had these seizures, which caused, at the end of the seizure, she would become extremely violent. Whoever was around, she tried to kill, including her, one of her parents. And then the seizure would pass, and she would be incredibly remorseful and say how she didn't want to do it. Nogata thought he was offering her hope. Maybe some people, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're happy with who you are, and so you find this repulsive, but not everybody is. Should people who are unhappy with who they are have the right to take advantage of this type of technology and change themselves? And should we be judging them? Well, I think that's kind of similar to abortion and the government trying to control everyone saying you're not allowed to an abortion or uh, everyone has the right to do what they want with their own how hands-off should we be? Can everybody do whatever they want? Can you go? Can you make yourself a cyborg if it doesn't bother me, per se? Like, should I really be bothered by it? Um, and when we talk about government, I at least want to share with you Delgado's extremely off-the-charts ideas about government. Because it's interesting. Obviously, even he recognized that the question of who controls these switches is a key 
question, right? You probably don't want to have uh, Obamacare 2 where you get a brain simulator and it makes the website work somehow, no. Uh, we probably don't want the government controlling these implants. That's, that's already nightmarish, right? Uh, but, Ob but Delgado proposed something really, really bizarre. Um, I, I can only really, he didn't articulate a lot, but I can explain it in this experiment that he did. He had a colony of primates, um, and primates, these monkey colonies are often really brutal to each other. There's often a dominant male or female that really enforces their status by being tough on the other ones. So he put a stim receiver in the dominant male, and he put a controller for it on the wall. And what the monkeys gradually worked out is if they went over and pressed this button, the dominant male basically like kind of tuned out for a little while and couldn't do things to them. And gradually, social control of his behavior emerged. This, these colony of monkeys learned to go over whenever they'd see him get upset or agitated or they, when it was feeding time and they knew that there was going to be a fight over food, they'd just walk over preemptively and calm him down. Be like, take a chill, dude. <laughs> this is poignant that Delgado was from Spain and had suffered under the Franco regime and actually specifically suggested how delighted he would have been to put one of these in Generalissimo Franco how we wouldn't have problems with dictatorships and oppression if we could all just walk over and, 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 and vote, vote with our buttons and just calm down our leaders and get them to behave more responsibly. Maybe it's the leaders that need these, and then they could really do what we're asking them to do instead of just enriching themselves. I don't know. That's a pretty wild idea. What else? Am I convincing anybody? Is anybody starting to say, oh, OK, now I'm starting to like this? No. <laughs> Let me try one more tact. And again, I think the extremity argument may be the only one that's really somewhat compelling here. That um, this is a very extreme thing, and you have this knee-jerk reaction to, to be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. Uh, I'll at least just point out, for example, Hippocrates says extreme remedies are very appropriate for extreme diseases. Jesus gives this extreme advice. If there's something that's blocking your way, then get rid of it, right? It's better to get rid of it than it is to continue to suffer from it. So if you think about these people that have extreme behavioral disorders that are doing things maybe worse than eating bacon, that they seem like they have lost control over, people who are ruining their lives over addiction or gambling, and you think about the possibility that you could then help them. Does this sound at all a little more convincing that that might be a good idea? Still no, go ahead, give me a no, what, why not? It's that they, they made the choice, they got addicted to drugs, it's over. We shouldn't help them at all? Or not that way? Not that way. Anyone, anyone think they, they might want such a stimulator for an addict in your life? I don't know. We're not going to take orders right now. <laughs> Good. so much for someone in my life. It does seem like it's easy for the very extreme addicts. People who most Clear uh, processes We currently have a lot of extreme measures for people that are in serious trouble, right? We do have like anti abuse, um, let, not to keep going back to terrible examples, but for sex offenders, for example, uh, pedophiles, many states have an option where you could get a reduced sentence if you agree to chemical castration. That's the Matthew verse right there. So if you're a pedophile, we're just going to get rid of the sex drive altogether. 
And if you agree to it, then they'll reduce your sentence because you're not nearly as much of a threat to society anymore. That's extreme. That's also a good example of how Klutzy's uh, mechanisms are, which I was going to ask you about. How much more refined have these got since they've got? The, the example I'm thinking of is that if you remove testosterone, the accounts on that are that you don't just lose your desire for sexual gratification, you lose desire for anything. It, and, you know, you, your whole desire index goes down the tubes. That means ambition, that means success at work, that means all that kind of thing. And they have to live with that, those people who do this. And the question, and this seems like the God was having that too. The monkey doesn't just stop attacking, the monkey goes into a stupor. Yeah. The question, I mean, how much more refined has this gotten in terms of these things? Right now, not at all. Uh, it's really, it's this huge gray area that um, Delgado and Heath did their work, they reported their work, their labs basically got shut down over the outcry over their work, and people haven't really returned to these questions since that time. Now, the, the, the deep brain simulation has become really popular. I mentioned 100,000 people now, but it has initially been restricted exclusively, where did it go, to Parkinson's and other neurological diseases, not for behavioral remedies. But that has really changed over the past couple of years. And right now, it's still really primitive. Uh, it's primitive in terms of the brain areas targeted, and it's even primitive, like, it's right now, it's just a pacemaker. It just sends signals. Even Delgado was past that. He was already giving feedback, trying to identify when you're in trouble and then give a more refined stimulation at the times you needed it. Um, and we're, nobody has gotten back up to that point yet. Uh, but I don't think it'll be long. I think, that, I think that people are, despite the consensus in this room, there are a lot of people interested in these technologies. Um, one of the big funders is the, the Department of Defense. Um, they may be interested not in making people less, more moral, but maybe less moral, overcoming inhibitions or things like that that may impair them on the battlefield, or making them more vigilant so they could fly longer missions. Um, so I bring this up to you, I mean, in part because I think this is actually an issue that will be coming for your age. I think this is a debate you're going to be having. Uh, it, at some point, you'll be like, I remember some crazy old guy told us about this, and now it's like real. Now my kid has one of these implants, right? Uh, I think, I could be wrong, I think this is kind of coming down the line. Uh, let me see if I can get you guys talking a little bit more here. There's one other thing I wanted to mention. I just want to, again, I want to at least give Delgado at least something of a fair hearing here and his view of this future utopia. Um, he said, that if you think about it, our power has increased incredibly uh, over the past couple centuries. The humans have gone from being cavemen to nuclear masters and, and space explorers very, very rapidly. And the he argues that our brains have not evolved to keep up, that you still have a primitive cave person brain that likes to smack the people that diss you or bomb the people that are a different religion of you or use all the resources that you can ever hog up regardless of what it's going to do to the environment. All these ills that you've talked about, I'm sure, in the seminars, right? That you've got a Stone Age brain for uh, a nuclear age life. And he said that he said his belief was that the only way forward was through brain stimulation. He said that we were like the Brontosaurus, this enormous bulk of power controlled by a little pea-sized brain. And that's not a very flattering analogy for us humans, right? But he said that we are like the brontosaurus. We're this enormously powerful thing with an incredibly inadequate brain. And it's no mistake that the brontosaurus went extinct and that we're headed in the same direction if we don't figure out a way 
to improve our behavior radically quickly. That in his mind, our biggest threat to ourselves was our own selves. Now you might argue trying to put a bunch of simulators in each other probably is not the right way to solve that. But it was his thought that if we could potentially find a way forward if we just re-engineered ourselves. So here's where I'm at. Um, I, we talked about how we often fail to live up to our ideals. I think that's, that's the easy part of the talk. I think that's probably true. Uh, we talked about how science is increasingly giving us this additional power, a quite scary power, to reshape ourselves. It's moving not from the external environment to make it hotter or colder in here or to have power or transportation, but the power to change who you are is really growing through drugs, through deep brain stimulation, through other types of interventions. And so you're really facing, you may be amongst the first generations to really face the choice of who you want to be in a radically different way than previous generations. And so that's the question. Is, it, is the unstimulated life not worth living? Which path are you going to take? Which path do you think is right for yourself and for society? Is there, is there a need for us to actually improve ourselves through technology? Or was that actually the exact wrong way to go? What I can tell you myself is I have no idea. I have none. I, I, that's why I'm so fascinated by this. This is why I'm so excited to come talk to you, with you again today, because it just keeps me up at night. I can't tell if I'm repulsed by this because it is repulsive or because I'm just too old-fashioned and I'm not willing to jump on what the, the direction that's going to save us all. Right? And I hope you'll figure this out. Uh, I really do. I hope you'll make some good decisions. Uh, as this becomes a topic for debate. I hope you'll continue to, to argue with each other and form some strong opinions about this. Because I, as science fiction as it seems, I think this is something that's really on your horizon. So uh, I also want to thank you very much for being here and for listening. Uh, I want to thank Dean Carlson and, and Dr. Roman for setting this up and making this possible. And, uh, and I hope that this will be some, something stimulating for future discussion. And we can, I'll stop slides and we can just take questions and answers now. How's that sound? The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.